Tonight's Bible reading is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar here, and it's lovely to have you with us. Um, keep your Bibles open. I'm going to pray and we'll get going. Lord God, only by your spirit can you uh, open our eyes to see the glorious reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So please, please, would you do that now for our good for his glory and for, for the blessing of your world. Amen. Look, I'm sure you, uh, you clocked as we, as we heard the reading just now that this is a thoroughly theological set of verses. It's full of deep truths about Jesus rather than advice for how to make your life go well or anything like that. And you may be wondering, what on earth is the relevance to my daily life of, of all that, no doubt, deep pontificating you may be thinking, actually, what I really need right now is help with relationships or career or anxiety or anger, not uh, deep thoughts about theological truths. But let me explain to you why this is an incredibly relevant passage for each and every one of us tonight. And this is true whether you've been a Christian for years and years and years and are familiar with church things, or if you've just started looking into it, it's true the same. Here's why it's relevant. The Christian life is not a set of rules to obey or a lifestyle to learn. It is primarily a person to trust, Jesus Christ. Christianity doesn't teach you how to achieve inner peace and overcome the anxiety and the worries caused by, well, just everything that's going on right now. Instead, it reveals Jesus who rules over the cosmos and who cares and provides for us in the midst of everything that's going on. And it calls on us to trust in him. Christianity doesn't teach you how to deal with your sin. It doesn't help you to free yourself from, from the guilt and the shame of the stuff you've done. Instead, it reveals Jesus who died to pay completely for your sins 
and who is at work now to, to change the, the ugly anger and the lust and the selfishness in our hearts and that blights our lives and relationships and it calls on us to trust in him. Christianity doesn't teach you how to, to get safely through death. It reveals to us Jesus Christ who died and rose again and is still alive and calls on us to trust in him. And so if you want to be spiritually healthy and happy and useful, then what you really need above everything else is a clear, true vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we get in these verses in Colossians 1. So the, the great Puritan theologian John Owen wrote these words in one of his greatest works, The Glory of Christ, as he explains why we need to grasp who Jesus is and what he's done. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And so as I've been preparing tonight, the thing I've been praying is that the Holy Spirit will work into us by his word, a richer, a deeper, a truer vision of who Jesus is. Now, we're in Colossians. We're working through this term through Colossians. Paul is writing to a church in Turkey in the town of Colossae. And the Christians there, they feel basically inadequate. That's the issue. And in the first half of chapter one, he told them, look, you're genuine Christians. You put your faith in the genuine Jesus and you were therefore rescued. You were, as it says in um, verses 12 and 13, brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. And now he begins to show us and them why it is that if you have this Jesus, the son, if you've been rescued by him, well, then you have everything you could possibly need. So first things, uh, we'll, we'll work through it in three little sections, which I think show the development of Paul's argument. The son is supreme over creation. He is its creator. That's the first thing we see. Verses 15 to 17. Look at verse 15 with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The image of the invisible God. Now, he's not here talking about what happens when God the Son becomes a human being, Jesus Christ, and God's uh, image is seen in human flesh. That's not what he's talking about. In these verses, he's talking about what happens in eternity past before even creation. This is about the, uh, the son's eternal status. The point is, the son shares divinity with the father. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. Uh, if, if God is pictured as the son, then uh, as in the son in the whole universe, son, then the son, O-N, is like the, the S-U-N's rays, radiating out, radiating out the glory of the sunshine. And so it is no surprise then that it is the Son who comes to earth and takes flesh to reveal God to us. Because from eternity past, he has been radiating out the glorious majesty of God. And then he comes to earth to do that in his human body. And he is the firstborn over creation, which 
it kind of sounds like, well, so he's a created thing. He's just the first created thing, except that the very next verse, verse 16, says he created everything. He's the creator, not the created. But in the Bible, being firstborn is less about uh, which order you come in your family. Apparently, I'm a classic middle child. Don't, and whatever. The, it's, it's less about the order in which you, you appear in the family and more about your position of ruling. So in Psalm 89, a great psalm about uh, the Davidic kingship, how King David is the great king over all of Israel, we read, verse 27, Psalm 89, I will appoint David to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. He was the youngest son of Jesse. But firstborn is about position, the right to rule. And the son, God the son, Jesus Christ, is the firstborn, not over the kings of the earth, but over the whole cosmic order. And that includes you and me. Now, the next statements in verse 16, they kind of flesh out or prove that he is this great divine ruler over all. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The point is that all the things that we look to and think, well, they have the power to determine how life goes for us in this world, all those things... Well, he made them. Now, for us, you know, the political powers, whether it's uh, squabbling candidates for presidency or autocratic rulers who scorn democracy, economic powers like the great tech titans, you know, Apple's worth, net worth, is now greater than the combined GDP of all 54 nations of the African Union. Extraordinary. It's like they own the world, these companies. Raw natural forces like hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes, which literally shake the very foundations of our world. Or dark spiritual powers that we, we don't really understand and that either fascinate or terrify us. Jesus rules them all. He made them all. Even the things that are now fallen and corrupted, he made them. He made them good. The devil, therefore, is, is on a leash. In Luther's stunning phrase, even the devil is God's devil. Verse 17 then summarizes things for us. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that is was made by him. He's the source of, of every atom in existence. And it all exists for him. Every atom vibrates for the glory of Jesus Christ ultimately. And he is what holds it together. Now, we're used to thinking uh, that some things are solid and stable and, and other things, well, they require active involvement to keep them going. So peace and harmony, when my two little boys are playing, that requires a fairly large degree of active involvement on our part. If we withdraw our attention, the peace and harmony tends to evaporate rapidly. Our house, however, I never give a second thought to whether it's still standing because it whether I'm actively involved or not, it is just there. Well, the mind-boggling thought of verse 17 is that physical reality, that the houses we live in, 
the mountains of the Himalayas, the people sitting around you, only continue to exist moment by moment because Jesus actively wills it. If he stops actively willing that we continue to exist, then all of reality will just evaporate. Nothing, nothing shows the supremacy, the godness of Jesus the Son like creation. He is more real, more permanent, and more solid than anything we see. He created it. I mean, just try creating something yourself, anything. I mean, imagine a great British bake-off. Imagine they say, the technical challenge this week is just to make one cupcake. Not difficult, but you all tell us your creative types. So go on then, create it. No ingredients, create it. Be a fairly dull episode. I mean, can't create cupcake without ingredients. Even something as small as that. Who can do that? None of us. Jesus can. He got a cupcake. He created the cosmos out of nothing. He made everything. I read um, uh, Tim Kesey, who's a journalist. I read his book, Dispatches. He travels around the world visiting uh, Christians in, where they suffer persecution and, and oppression. And he talks uh, about a pastor called Pastor Gennady in one of the former Soviet republics, where it's still very difficult for the church. And as he met the pastor, he was just going into a meeting with the commandant of a massive local prison because he wanted to start preaching the gospel to the prisoners. The only problem is that this commandant that he was trying to get permission from had been the local police chief under the communist regime, and he had led the persecution of Christians. He'd kicked down this pastor's door, taken his Bibles and thrown him into prison. And yet, Tim says, as he met the, the pastor before he goes in to see this prison commandant, he said he, he wasn't looking sort of, oh, this is just a waste of everybody's time. We know how this is going to go. He was confident, optimistic. He said, why? He said, oh, it's all right. I've been over his head. Oh, okay, so you've spoken to the regional governor. No, 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 I've prayed to Jesus. Way over his head. I don't know what troubles you. What drives you to pray? But do you realize every time you pray, you go over the head of everything and everyone that troubles you? For he is the creator, the supreme ruler of all things. He is the God who can. The Son is supreme over creation. He is its creator. The Son is supreme, secondly, over new creation. He is its beginning. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Son is the head of the new creation, uh, his supremacy in the old creation, this creation, is the pattern for the next creation. And as he rose from the dead with an eternal undying body, it was the beginning of the new order. His resurrection body is, is the first act of the new creation. And the church are those who have joined him in it. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, 
You may well know that the salvation that Jesus achieved in his death and resurrection is often pictured as a a new exodus. Just as in the original exodus, the people of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh, being worked to death, and God rescued them and brought them into his kingdom. So in in Jesus' death, we who are slaves to sin and face eternal death under God's judgment are rescued and brought into the kingdom of the Son, a new exodus. But it is also, according to Colossians 1, a new genesis, a new creation. As Paul puts it in another of his letters, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. He is the beginning and the firstborn. He is the prototype of the new creation. He is the first to have a a resurrection body suitable for eternal life. And he has the power to transform your body so that it would be like his glorious body forever. And so he has supremacy in everything, this creation and the new one that he's making. So in this second section, it's a bit different. The the world, both the physical cosmos and the people within, it's all pictured as this great, beautiful, perfect glass orb that God has built. And humanity, it's a, when we rebelled against God and turned against him, it's as if we cut the cord by which creation was sustained by God. And it fell and shattered into a million pieces, causing untold misery and harm to people and to the created order itself. And, and now, what has God done? Well, it would be amazing of him if he were to start afresh and create another, better creation, a more beautiful one even than this. But what we're told here is something even more spectacular, something more glorious. The recreation is described, you see, verse 20, as reconciliation. What do I mean? Well, rather than sweeping the detritus of this world into the bin and starting afresh, The son came to reconcile and restore. Not just to make something new, but to make us new. To make a perfect world out of very imperfect people. And it's, back to the Great British Bake Off, it's like um, someone produces the most stunningly beautiful wedding cake. And they're asked about the ingredients, and instead of eggs and butter and flour and whatever else, no, they just... They brought along the two-week-old fetid contents of their food recycling bin and tipped that out. You can't make a beautiful cake out of stuff like that. But Jesus takes the raw material of a selfish, ugly, wicked, fickle people like us and makes it into something radiatingly beautiful, rich, glorious. It is mind-boggling. When we actually get insight, as we sometimes do, into quite how rotten our hearts are and how deeply ingrained the self-obsession and the pride and the pettiness and the prejudice is, well, then you see how glorious his work is and you praise him. Lastly, the Son has reconciled us through faith. He's reconciling all things. And you and I can be part of that reconciliation by putting our faith in him. Let's start back at verse 20. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you've heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. When the Son entered this world, he entered a broken world and he absorbed the misery and the sickness and the relational dysfunction and the wickedness and perversion and hatred. And having taken it upon himself, he went to the cross. And you see, Christ Jesus on the cross is the meeting place between holy God and sinful humanity. His body on the cross is the place where the two collide and he is consumed in fiery judgment. But with God's wrath, his judgment absorbed, Jesus can then lead us back into God's presence, reconciled by his death. And we move from being part of the old creation to part of the new as we trust in Jesus. We go from God's enemies, alienated by our evil behavior, verse 21, to his family. Now look at verse 22. All the things that make us feel alienated from God are dealt with. We feel unworthy and, and spiritually as if God could never, he could never have purposes for me. He's, he's made us holy. That is set apart as his special vessel for his use. We feel filthy and, and morally stained and he's washed us clean without spot or stain or blemish. None of the stench or dirt of our moral filth remains. Our consciences accuse us and, and remind us of stuff we've done and it makes us feel deep shame and guilt. But God the judge has seen Jesus take all the punishment and so he declares you free from accusation, innocent, righteous. He has reconciled us to God. He's done it already. And we can live in the freedom of that today. And we can enjoy that relationship from tomorrow forever. In Jesus, Everything is reconciled, but only in Jesus the Son. He's the only one to die for our sins. And that's why Paul warns us in verse 23 to continue to trust in the gospel. This gospel message of a saviour who has died for us is the only hope for reconciliation. And because Jesus has reconciled the greatest fracture between us and God where he breathes hope into us for the reconciliation of the other brokenness that we see. Now, I think that no generation is as aware and concerned about the divisions, the inequalities, and the oppressive injustices of our world as, as this generation. But there is a difference, as, as I think about it, between this generation and the civil rights movement of the 1960s, for instance. And that is, I think... There's little hope that 
racial harmony, for instance, can actually be achieved. The modern movements that we have rightfully call for protest against structural inequality and, and, and an acknowledgement of systemic racism. But when you read the manifestos, there's no, there's no answer to how things can change, no hope that there can be a reconciled, harmonious society. But in Colossians 1, there is hope for reconciliation. In fact, it's the very hope that led Martin Luther King to declare all those years ago, I have a dream. A dream of a world where Jesus reconciles. I'm not sure if you've um, had the chance to, to listen to the, the London Living podcasts that the church produced a couple of months ago. The, the podcast that Vera produced is incredibly powerful. Uh, she uh, talks about just a few of the really awful, uh, racist incidents that she has uh, put up with from the police and from other people since she moved to this country as a child. I have to say, I, I felt, and it doesn't happen often, probably maybe it should happen more, but I actually felt genuinely ashamed. I thought, my country, and we've done this to you. It was awful to hear. But the extraordinary thing, as you, as you listen to Vera speak, is that she's devoid of bitterness and anger because she has found in Jesus Christ hope and forgiveness and peace. And she sees in the church that God is at work to bring peace and healing where our world is fractured and angry because she has found the reconciler Jesus and she knows that he makes a difference. See, the God who has solved the unbridgeable gap between holy him and sinful us, well, once you've found that, you find he has the power to heal the other divisions in our society, our families, our lives. Now, look, I think you get an idea of what Paul is trying to do when you, when you notice the repeated word in this section. Did you notice as we read through what word, what small word is repeated again and again and again? I'll, uh, I'll have to slightly give the game away to tell you that in Greek, all, all things and everything are the same word. Let me reread the first half of the passage. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy." For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. That is not the God of the gaps, is it? That is the God who leaves no gaps whatsoever. And his point is, what on earth do you lack if you have this Jesus? And my question to us as we close is, is your Jesus, the Jesus in your life, as big as this Jesus, the real Jesus? A Jesus big enough to give us hope when we feel demoralized and just outgunned by our sinful desires and overwhelmed 
by the anxiety and fear in life? Are Jesus big enough to protect us from God's rightful, wrathful judgment? Are Jesus big enough to give us confidence to speak for him when it's deeply unpopular in our culture? Are Jesus big enough to take away our fear of death? So give him the worship, the obedience, the preeminence that he deserves, not just in church, but in life. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for Paul showing us him as he truly is. Help us to see him in all his glorious supremacy and majesty. And help us to live lives that show how we trust in an almighty supreme saviour. Amen.